Hey, it's Andrew, the director of Literary Arts. Here at Literary Arts, we rely on our community, people like you, for support. To help make this podcast and all our programming possible, give today, literary-arts.org forward slash donate. Welcome to the Archive Project. I'm Andrew Proctor, Executive Director of Literary Arts. The Archive Project is a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. In this episode, we feature a conversation I had with Micah Lewis from the 2023 Portland Book Festival. Lewis is one of the most accomplished and celebrated writers of nonfiction at work today. He is the author of 17 books of nonfiction, including Liar's Poker, Moneyball, The Big Short, and Flash Boys. All his books are about unconventional people doing extraordinary things, usually behind the scenes. Lewis joined us to talk about his new book, Going Infinite, The Rise and Fall of a New Tycoon. It's a book about Sam Bankman-Fried and the eventual collapse of his cryptocurrency hedge fund, Alameda Research, and the exchange he also founded called FTX. When we sat down to talk, Bagman Freed had just been found guilty of seven federal charges, all finance-related, and was awaiting sentencing. It was a trial that many consider the biggest and most important in the world of finance in decades, and was one that was closely watched all across the world. Lewis had unrestricted access to Bagman Freed, spending over a year reporting as he amassed one of the largest fortunes in the world and then lost everything as his businesses collapsed. The result of that reporting in Going Infinite paints a picture of Bankman-Fried that is very different than how he was portrayed in the press and by government prosecutors. Lewis offers a perspective on Bankman-Fried and many of his closest colleagues that is rooted in understanding their deeper motives, how they were shaped as a generation, and how and why they made the mistakes they made. His conclusion is both startling and important to reckon with for its consequences for our society, regardless of whether you followed the case closely or not. I'm so glad you're here. I'm glad I'm here. <laughs> Thank you for coming. It's a delight to host you again. Last time you were here was 2017, I think. The confession that I want to make right at the beginning of this conversation is I didn't even know who Sam Bankman-Fried was until the Super Bowl of 2022 when Larry David did that hilarious set of ads for FTX. Yes. And that is sort of happening at the peak of some of the sort of craziness that the book gets into. And, and what is so great and valuable about this book and why you all need to read it is that Michael does what he always does, which is get beyond the headlines, get below the ads, and actually tells you an amazing story that is almost impossible to believe actually happened. So um, I had a great time. Now, there is a really fun Oregon connection to this book, and I've asked Michael, and he's graciously agreed to read just a little page of it because uh, it, it takes place in Beaverton. Maybe I'll ask you to set it up. It's about a, 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 a Democratic primary of a guy named Carrick Flynn. Just give me the book, I'll set it up. Okay, you set it up. Yeah. yeah. So, so, so um, but let's set, let's set up just a little bit yep. more than just this scene. So Sam, in case, there are people here probably still don't know who Sam Bankman-Fried is. Crypto tycoon who has reasons for making lots of money that are done different from the usual reasons for making lots of money. He sets out when he's, he goes from having no money in 2019, basically, to having $22 billion, according to Forbes magazine, by the end of 2021. 
And he starts making massive political donations that are not about necessarily about his business. And what he did here in Oregon was one of those things. He set out to actually get people elected to Congress right. uh, who were expert in an area that obsessed Sam Bankman-Free, which was pandemic prevention. Right. And he had the view that the money was, his money was better spent in primaries than in generals, because in generals, everybody's opinion's made up. In primaries, you actually can shift it with money. But it was all experimental. They, you know, it was sort of like, here I have un seemingly unlimited sums of money. Let's see if we do this, what will happen in politics? Right. And you all here were the re recipient of one of these little experiments. You would like me to start? I was thinking just uh, top of that paragraph, yeah. In a very short time, Sam's money had bankrolled some of the most spectacular fa failures in the history of political manipulation. <laughs> Carrick Flynn, for example. When Sam stumbled upon him, Carrick Flynn was a newcomer to elective politics. He was the quintessential Washington, D.C. policy wonk, one of the faceless minions in blue suits who sit along the wall behind the more important people and occasionally rise and whisper something in their ears. Carrick Flynn's most important trait, in Sam's view, was his total command and commitment to pandemic prevention. His second most important trait was that he was an effective altruist. He could be counted on to follow the math rather than woolly-minded feelings. Conveniently, he had recently moved from DC to a newly created left-leaning congressional district outside of Portland, Oregon. The seat felt so up for grabs that 15 other candidates would eventually jump into the race. Flynn asked some fellow effective altruists what they thought about him running for Congress. As a political candidate, he had obvious weaknesses. In addition to being a Washington insider and a bit of a carpetbagger, he was terrified of public speaking and sensitive to criticism. <laughs> he described himself as very introverted. And yet none of the effective altruists could see any good reason for him not to go for it. And so he'd thrown his hat into the ring. Somewhere along the effective altruist trail, he'd become known to Sam. He had a sense that Sam might support him, but he had no idea what that meant. The writer Dave Wagle captured the moment he learned in the opening of an article in the Washington Post. We were watching a YouTube video together, a tutorial about something, said Flynn, sitting with his wife, Catherine, after a US Chamber of Commerce breakfast last week, where he and other Democratic congressional candidates heard a presentation on suburban crime. All of a sudden, we hear a voice say, Carrick Flynn, remembered his wife. And I had water in my head, said Flynn. His wife corrected him. Mountain Dew, she said. It would have been diet Mountain Dew, Flynn said more confidently. Whatever he was drinking, Flynn had, at the sound of his own name in a paid political advertisement, spilled it all over himself. It was the first fusillade in the, in the political equivalent of the D-Day invasion. Sam's political team took $10 million of Sam's money, jammed it into bazookas, and fired it into the Portland suburbs. <laughs> this little primary became the most expensive in Oregon history. Then it became the third most expensive House Democratic primary in the entire country. Sam's attempt to turn Carrick Flynn into a congressman was less a political campaign than an assault on the senses of the local population. Being in it really did feel like being in an episode of Veep, said Tess Seeger, who ran the campaign of a rival Democrat. The people who report on the trailblazers were literally complaining how many Carrick Flynn ads there were. The whole thing was kind of done unartfully. So that was... <laughs>
I mean, so that, yeah. No. So I asked for that passage because, one, it demonstrates, I think this is your funniest book, and it, which is strange because of the way things have turned out. Yeah. It's really hard. And it brings up a whole lot of really interesting things about Sam. And I think, to your point earlier, we should go back and just like level set here. Like, Sam Bankman-Fried, as a child, had a, he had a very strange childhood. Yeah. And can you talk a little bit about his sort of backstory? You don't want to finish up on what all that meant? I, I, we can. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Over and over, he was running these little experiments in American politics, some of which worked and some of which didn't. But the audacity of which were incredible. I just want to give you a little bit more of a taste of this, because this was, this was something that didn't work. But he has in his mind, with his political donations, not so much, I'm going to influence crypto legislation or whatever. There was a little of that. It really was, I'm going to save the world from Donald Trump. I'm going to save the world from Donald Trump, and I'm going to get people who are expert in subjects that I think are important into Congress. The scope of this becomes clear to me when I'm on a flight with him to Washington. He's flying to meet with a dinner with Mitch McConnell, and he's agreed to fund Mitch McConnell's meddling in Republicans' primaries across the country. And when McConnell had, had done the work of distinguishing the real Trumpers from the fake Trumpers in the Republican primaries. And there were people, everybody had to say they liked Donald Trump and they were kind of for Donald Trump. But they were the genuine election deniers who wanted to just burn the government down. And they're the people who were willing to govern who McConnell felt he could work for. So I'm sitting on this plane with Sam Bankman-Fried talking about how he's gonna pour however many tens of millions of dollars into this effort. And he mentions by the by that the real thing he really wants to do is, is persuade Donald Trump not to run for president. And I said, well, how are you going to do that? He says, well, we're in negotiations now, and I'm going to, I'm going to pay him not to run for president. He, I said, well, what that's, what's that going to cost? He says, right now, we're at $5 billion. And, and so, so there was someone in Sam's political operation, which was kind of made up on the spot, this operation, and was doing things like trying to get Carrick Flynn elected to Congress that had already had a line in to Donald Trump and was engaged in this negotiation. Now, of course, my response was, I had two responses to this. One was, you really think that if you give Donald Trump $5 billion and he promises not to run for president, that that's going to, you know what he's going to do. He's going to take the $5 billion and use it to run for president. That, that, that's the first thing. But the second thing was, like, how real is all this? Are you really? So in this conversation, Sam says, one of the things we've just done with Trump, we have an idea for, for neutralizing him in this really important Missouri Senate Republican primary. There were two candidates in the primary who looked at that moment like they were viable. One was named Eric Schmidt, and another other was named Eric Greitens. And Greitens was a true Trumper, and Schmidt was a fake Trumper. And the question was how you stop Trump from jumping in that election, endorsing Eric Greitens, and possibly sweeping him to victory. And Sam, he's telling me on this, in this conversation where he's telling me he's going to pay Trump $5 billion not to run for president, that he has seeded Trump with this idea that what he should do is just say, I'm for Eric. That there are two Eric's. <laughs> and, that, and, and the argument Sam's people had made, I think through Donald Trump Jr. to Trump, was you don't care who wins. You just want to say you back the winner. And if you say I'm for Eric, whoever, whichever Eric wins, you're going to look great. And, there's going to, and you're going to get a meme out of it because everybody's going to think it's so funny. 
So he's telling me this, and again, it's like over and over with Sam Bankman Fried is how real is this? Right. Two days later, Trump, Trump goes on Truth Social and says, I'm for Eric. And, and so I think it was all real. And Carrick Flynn was in his way real. And what Sam took away from that was, oh, well, that was an experiment. And what we learned is there's some candidates with whom you can't spend, for whom you can't spend enough money to get them elected to Congress. There's not enough money in the world to get, actually persuade people in the Portland suburbs to elect Carrick Flynn to Congress. So well, I'm sorry to go on no, that. No, no, no. But right. the, so, and I think what you're getting at, though, too, is really important to the book and also to the sort of strange outcome. The trial sort of took on a strange tenor, which is that, I mean, it's really easy to think that maybe Sam Bankman-Fried is just some crypto bag. Yeah. But like, Actually, it's way more complicated than that. And way more interesting. Than that. And way more interesting than that. The passage you read refers to effective altruism, which is a big part of his motivation. I think it'd be worth just, could you talk about the, uh, the movement and his relationship I, to it? The, yes. Can I talk about like, what created Sam Bankman for yeah. you? Because you were starting with his childhood. And that, yeah. this is important. If I start, I might not stop. So you're going to have to just interrupt me in places? I, I, I will do that. Because so I, I want to go back to your, we'll start with his childhood, right? Yeah, yeah. So this person, I've never had a subject like this. My thing is to move into people's worlds and their lives. And at some point, I ask, I, we, the childhood is always important in some way. And I asked him for a, a list of people who could tell me what he was like before the age of 18. And his response was, that's Slim Pickens. And I said, well, well, just give me a couple of names. He said, well, my parents. Well, beyond that, he didn't have anybody. There was nobody. And I kicked around in, his, in where, the places he'd been and talked to old classmates and all the rest. It was the most shockingly isolated childhood. He didn't have social relationships. And in addition, there was an awareness from a very early age in him that he wasn't like other people. He had been born without the usual complement of human feeling, like did not experience empathy, was very aware of that, did not experience pleasure, and had, by the time he's in high school, replaced, you know, most of us go through life as feeling instruments. You know, we feel our way through things. And yeah, we calculate, but the calculation tends to take back seat to the intuition. And our emotional life plays a very important role. Our emotions play a very important role in our decisions, in the paths we take, in the people we associate with, and what we do with our lives. He had defaulted to the mechanism that was available to him, which was mathematical calculation. Right. That he had learned to think of, try to turn every problem, every life problem, into a math problem. It was all probabilities. It was all probabilities. It was all expected value calculations. And it, it was already a habit with him, this, when he goes to college. And in college, he collides with these two things that then will shape him. And the first is the, the effective altruist movement. And this movement, it's a, it's, a, it's a really interesting little petri dish in our culture right now. It's, because it hasn't died even with the Sam Bankman Freed implosion. Brief, his, brief history of the movement. If I tell it in the dinner party way, I'd start with Peter Singer's the Australian philosophers, the story he tells in an argument he makes in the 1970s. And the story, it's a, he was thinking of a story where he's trying to demonstrate or dramatize for people their obligation to other human beings. Mm. And you're walking, you're walking down a path, you pass a pond, and in the pond you see a small child drowning. You happen to have a new pair of shoes on. It's a $200 pair of shoes. Do you even think twice before you leap into the pool and ruin your shoes to save that child? No, you don't. So, says Peter Singer, why do we think twice before we 
don't buy the shoes and spend the $200 on some poor child we don't know in Africa and save his life or her life. He was making the argument that we had to expand the circle of our obligation to other people. And then once you do that, you get to kind of radical places where your philanthropic duty is sort of to give up to the point where the benefit to other people doesn't exceed the cost to yourself. And it's talk when he does this back in the 70s and the 80s. And it, I, I remember Peter Singer's ideas kind of bubbling around in the background for a long time, just making people uncomfortable, but not actually leading to any practical consequences. Until a small group of philosophers in England, in, at Oxford, three or four young philosophers, start taking it very seriously right. right after the financial crisis and make an argument and actually put it into practice. And one of these guys writes a paper showing that if he just gives away half of his salary and he gives it away effectively with the goal of maximizing lives, lives saved, being really rigorous about it, that over the course of his career, he will prevent, say, 80,000 children in Africa from blindness. And he's, he was making an argument that you, if you are going to live for other people, that you ought to start thinking this way about how you spend your resources. This movement very quickly goes in a, a wild direction. And, and Sam Bankman-Fried walks into a talk when he's a junior in college uh, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. He's at MIT. And one of these philosophers is making the case to a bunch, and is proselytizing these ideas in basically to the math and science students at people who are responsible responsive to this kind of, the argument is, that the goal is to maximize some number. Right. They're making the argument that if you accept that you're put on earth to maximize your benefit for other human beings, and the cleanest way to measure that and to think about this is maximize the lives you save, and you are uh, making a decision about what to do with your life, you can, go, you can take various paths where you're directly helping other people being a doctor in Africa. Or you can go out and maximize the dollars you make and pay for someone else to go do the doctoring in Africa. Uh, well, then you need to think about this and do some math. Right. And the math is pretty simple if you're Sam Bankman-Fried. You spend a career as a doctor in Africa, say, and you save 1,000 lives. But if you, say, if you spend your career on Wall Street and you can make a fortune, you can pay for 50 doctors in Africa. Right. Sam actually responds to this idea, and a bunch of other kids do. And I remember hearing this kind of 2013, 14. I'd hear from people on Wall Street, hey, we just hired this guy, and he came to work for us, not because he wants the money, but because he can give it all away. Earn to give. Earn to give. And I thought, this is wild. This, this could bring down Wall Street. If they have, you have a whole bunch <laughs> right. of people there who actually aren't greedy, uh, nobody's going to know what to do. No one's going to know what to do. And, uh, and in fact, this happens in a f funny little way. Uh, the threat it becomes salient to the people on Wall Street. So Sam, right after, as he meets, at the same time he's hearing this religion about how to lead his life, he collides with modern Wall Street. Yep. And this book is in part about modern Wall Street. That's right. Well, and, I, so I, and just to, to do one of those little interruptions, like, I also think that like, there's the effective altruism movement, which becomes a central motivating force in his life. No right? question. You don't understand how weird the story is if you want to say, oh, he was just, that was phony. Everything about his life was designed around this movement. That's and, right. And now you could say that it got perverted because he measured himself by his success within the movement. Like he was ambitious within, he wanted to be the most important effective altruist. He wanted to give trillions he of dollars. He wanted to away. be the guy. Yeah. Uh, but there's no question this is what he 
lived, you know, yeah. lived for. And he surrounded himself by people who shared the same cult-like beliefs. And it collides with this change in Wall Street, too, so the, you know, which you've written about extremely eloquently in Flash Boys, but in other places, too, where you, you know, Wall Street, and correct me, you know, goes from a culture of brokers and investors to basically a lot of these firms are just high, they're high frequency traders. It's all programming. It's all machine trading. It's all automated. Right. It goes from uh, a place where there's lots of human interaction to a place where there's very little, where, there's, where the trading is done algorithmically. The trader is no longer directly trading. He's instructing a machine how to trade and watching the machine trade, almost right. like a video game. So enter the math nerd and, and, well, into and, Wall Street. And that's right. And so this per, if you go kind of invisibly since the financial crisis, the markets, as markets have become automated, the kind of person who's sitting in the middle of Wall Street has changed. Right. And the firms that are making the money have changed. The action is no longer at Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley and those places. The action is places that many people have never heard of. Jane Street. Jane Street, Jump Trading, Citadel, Virtu Financial. These are the places that are setting the prices of every asset in the financial markets. And they're doing it with a different kind of, a slightly different kind of person. Sam doesn't even know this exists. Sam is raised in a, by two Stanford law professors who are as disinterested in material things as people can be. Yeah. And Sam himself is, was kind of disinterested. He, he, would not, he was not a money person. These new firms have created a kind of mechanism for turning math nerds into money people. And they just, they, Sam collides with them. Is, yeah. They come to MIT, because the MIT math and physics departments are where they find their people. And up to that point, Sam Bankman-Fried has a, a sense of himself as very isolated from other people, socially different, ill-equipped emotionally to function in the world in a lot of ways, yeah. smart, but not clear that he's exceptional at anything. You and I were talking backstage about how kids, when they're professionalized really young, they quickly find out that, yeah, they're good at soccer, but when they're all of a sudden with all the best soccer players in the country, they're not good at soccer anymore. Yeah. This happened with Sam in math that he goes to math camp and he realizes that I'm just average, or tries to play chess with people who are really chess, I'm just average at that. The tests that these high frequency trading firms put the kids through to figure out who belongs, ends up testing for exactly what Sam is best at, and he doesn't know it until he tells. And the tests are, they're not like chess. They're like chess, but you gotta make the move in five seconds, speed chess, and every 10 minutes, some voice shouts new rules of the game. Right. So like queens or pawns, or bishops can fly, right. or whatever. It's these semi-chaotic environments. The interview process is all about figuring out how to make smart gambles when you, don't, you can't know the perfect answer or you don't have time to figure out the perfect answer. You can just get to a better answer with analysis. Right. And Sam blows the doors off this process. He's so good at it that one of the firms stops his interview process in the middle of it and says, you've already done better than anybody's ever done at this. We'll just give you a job. And what's curious about this is it is filtering for an intellectual aptitude, but it has no, there's no social filter. Like, it's not, do I like this person? Or will this person play well with others? Right. Is he good for the team? Is he good for the team? Does he even know what a team is? <laughs> and, 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 and Sam says, when he gets to the firm, he, see, he can see that you can see the changes in Wall Street by the people who were there in the firm, because the firm had started in the late 90s, back before everything was automated, and the older, tra the older traders were bigger physically, 
louder, their voices projected because they had to function in trading pits. They were much more social because trading was face to face. They had to have social abilities and equipment. The younger traders didn't. The younger traders were like the, the last stage of man. You know, the, ha- <laughs> the, 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 the hairless, totally evolved, giant brain on a stick. Is, uh, and and, and Sam, that, that was kind of Sam. Yeah. But Sam is extreme. Even here in this environment that has evolved to celebrate, encourage, incubate the giant hairless brain on a stick. Uh, th- th- that, in that environment, Sam stands out as socially inept. He finds the he, mo- place where he's exceptional. He, 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 well, he's really good at the job, but he tests the limits of, their ability, of, of, his so- of social ineptitude. It, even, in, you right. know, even in this place, you have to have some social skills. Right. He almost bounces out, he's washed out because of that. But in his mind, you know, if you want to understand where this story goes, he becomes convinced that he is God's gift to this kind of trading, that he's really, really good at it, yeah. that firm sees he's really, really good at it, and that this is kind of what he should be doing in life. I think in no other time in human history is Sam Bankman-Fried put in the position of taking financial risk for others. That he would have been filtered out by, by the process, would have been alien to the process 50 years ago. Like, you know, he just would not have fit on Wall Street. But Wall Street has come to the point where it can take someone like him and turn him into a money person. And of course, he has a motive, though. Right? Right, the the right. motive is, I'm going to make as much money as possible so I can give away as much money as possible. And what's so weird about this is the very pool of people that Jane Streets, these high-frequency trading firms are recruiting from, are the same pool of people that the effective altruists are recruiting from. So Jane Street, Jane Street gets to the point where they go, oh my God, we've got all these people who care about something other than money, it's gonna screw us up. Like, it's gonna <laughs> screw us up if they don't really need their next bonus to buy the second house in the Hamptons, because that keeps them in. And they, they actually start to get alarmed by the sheer number of utilitarians among them. And Sam is one of them. Sam right. is just one of a movement. The other sort of leg of the stool is cryptocurrency, right? Which is developing outside these firms for the most part. What blew me away a little bit, or dawned on what you say, I think, is that Bankman-Free doesn't really care about crypto that much. Not at all. Crypto has, is its own kind of quasi-religion, right? Aside, yep. I mean, it sort of exists in a different way than effective altruism, where people have become kind of the original crypto guys felt crypto, this, was, yeah. this was like almost like a social movement. Well, it was. If you think about what, how crypto starts, it starts in two... So effective altruism and crypto are born the same, basically the same year. And the original Bitcoin paper, written by person calling himself Satoshi Nakamoto, is very clearly an act of rebellion against the existing financial system. And it's very clearly an expression not only of mistrust of institutions and of banks and governments, but an attempt to create an environment in which that, the kind of trust we've placed in these institutions is no, is no longer necessary. And it, in its first, in the beginning, it attracts people who it's the kind of people who think the government's listening in on their phone calls. You know, right. That, that's right. right. It's right. that kind of person. Or a person who is libertarians. People who are instinctively hostile to government's institutions. But by the time Sam pays attention to it, so this isn't in the book, but there's a curious little note that when he was at MIT, one of these religionists was trying to peddle Bitcoin and a love of Bitcoin to all the MIT students. 
and he offered any MIT student a free Bitcoin who wanted to come and take it. And Sam didn't even bother to collect his. He was so, he, he didn't Just have a, no, no interest. But when he gets to Jane Street, he's been there for two years. The Jane Street stuff is just, it's breathtaking. We will skip over this, I know, yeah. but that, those two chapters in the book are two of my favorite chapters I've ever written. It's, the, what was going, what's going on in these places is spectacular. Yeah. Uh, it, just interesting. But Sam sees that what these high-frequency firms are doing is essentially introducing radical efficiency into financial markets. And by that, I mean essentially reducing to as close to zero the amount of time it takes any piece of information to be reflected in asset prices. You know, it's a race to be a millisecond faster. So there's not a lot of inefficiency, conventional inefficiency, in like stock prices. If, I don't know, Apple stock is trading on one exchange at $1,000 and another exchange at $1,000.10, someone is there instantly to correct that. And the kind of trades that they do, if they can get a, not a 1% advantage, if they can find a, a, a tenth of 1%, of a pure arbitrage, it's like, wow, that was an incredible opportunity. So from this seat where he's doing this, he looks, Sam looks out and sees, look, oh my God, look at what's happened to crypto. Crypto has gone from being this backwater filled with religionists who think the government's listening in on their calls to a $2 trillion asset market, or a trillion and a half or whatever it was yeah. at the time. It's gotten huge. And the high frequency, the conventional Wall Street people or even these new Wall Street people have not engaged with the market. So that you can buy a Bitcoin in the United States on an exchange at, for $800 and sell it at exactly the same time for $1,000 in Japan. And they have these 20% pure arbitrages. And he thinks, if I just take Jane Street, the model, and move it into crypto, I can make much more money than I'd ever make working at Jane Street. Yeah. And the, the size of the ambition, we can discuss why it yeah. becomes so grandiose, but the ambition is such that when he goes and talks to his Jane Street em employers about like how much money he might make there and thus give away, they're talking about if you're here eight years from now and you're doing as well as you're doing, you'll make $60 million a year. And th that's those sums of money. They, the, the people who at the top of these firms are billionaires. Yeah. This, there's lots of money to be made there. But Sam sees crypto and says there's way more to be made there and leaves this very lucrative job at Jane Street to start when it becomes Alameda Research. Right, and this is the first firm that is a hedge fund for crypto. It yes. started in Berkeley, California. So it's, it's the reason it starts in Berkeley, California is Berkeley, California has become by then the financial capital of effective altruism. Dustin Moskowitz, who was the, a Facebook founder, was attracted to effective altruism, is giving money away to effective altruist causes. He's in the Bay Area. The Center for Effective Altruism has been set up in Berkeley to raise money for effective altruist causes. Uh, so the m money is there. And also a, a, a pool of people is there. So here's where it gets bonkers. It starts to get bonkers. <laughs> so Sam Benfrey has been, in a, he's been trading on, at Jane Street for three years. And sure, he's good at what he does. But he's one of 200 traders on a Jane Street trading floor, constrained in every way by an organization that's designed to minimize how much damage one trader can do to the firm. You can think of it. You can think of it as what these what Jane Street is trying to do when it picks when it selects kids out of MIT. They're trying to find people who are really good at seeing at finding coins that are slightly weighted, so that they land on heads 51% of the time, right. and have hundreds of these people flipping coins as much as they can. And when you get that kind of those kind of numbers, 
you're going to win 51% of the time, right? There's this law of large just, just numbers. Just a volume thing. game. So, at that point. But Sam is this one of these, is a cog in this machine. And he, he moves and creates this new machine. And this new machine is bizarre. It's 20 effective altruists in Berkeley, California, basically none of whom have any financial experience. Like many of them can't tell you the difference between a stock and a bond. And they're all between the ages of 21 and 27. And they raise $175 million from other effective altruists to essentially try to be high the high-frequency trading firm for crypto. And it goes well for about three weeks, uh, <laughs> or a month. And this is where, to understand the, yeah. what happened at FTX, you need to understand this moment. So these are all people who are, in theory, members of the same religion. And, and they are all, in theory, like, who cares who makes the money? because it's all gonna to go to these causes anyway. They're trying to build this machine to make money for their purposes. And a month into it, or six weeks into it, they start to not just lose money, like the trades aren't working, but they lose money like you lost your keys. They don't know where the money is. That Sam has <laughs> built, a, is insisting on trading as fast as possible before he's built any kind of accounting, any kind of tr trade record keeping, so that they don't, they're making 250,000 trades a day and they, they've lost track of 30% of them. They're, they, what becomes the moment where the flashpoint in the group, which causes the group to split. The schism. The schism, they call it, right. It's religious, right? <laughs> so, but, but there's $4 million of a missing cryptocurrency called Ripple, yeah. and they, they can't find the Ripple. And Sam is saying, who cares where the Ripple is? It'll turn up at some point. And everybody else is saying, this is theft. This is, you know, we're like defrauding our customers, our investors. If we don't go, if we're just losing the money and not paying, we're that right. careless. And half the firm, 10 effective altruists, including every other member of his management committee, four of the five, quit. It's a bloodbath. I mean, they're at each other's throats. And of those, and those people quit not being quite sure what to make of Sam. In the worst case, one of them thinks he's just a liar and a fraud and he's stolen the ripple. And on the other end of it, they think he's insane. He's just trying to trade. He, he, that he's so obsessed with making these trade, these risk decisions and making as much money as he can as fast as he can. The carelessness is almost criminally negligent. Right. So they split, and Sam finds the ripple. And not only finds the ripple, but the firm starts to make a lot of money. Yeah. And Sam's trading stuff all starts to work out. And the, the nub of what becomes FTX were the remaining, those people who remained behind with Sam and sort of took a leap of faith that Sam wasn't a crook. I was gonna say the, the, the faithful the stayed. The faithful stayed. And the faithful then are, now have this new idea in their head that, well, whenever there's a mess, Sam's right. You know, that Sam knows what he's doing in a way that nobody else understands what he's Which doing. Which is what becomes extremely dangerous. It becomes extremely dangerous. And that's Caroline Ellison and Nishad Singh and Gary Wang and all the people who've been on witness stands testifying against him. The important ones, they were all part of the group that stuck with him because they basically decided they trusted him, that he just needed to be a little more careful, and that, but that there was nothing basically rotten there. They didn't need to check him in the ways that the people who quit felt they needed to check him. In that story, it's both an origin story for what's going to happen, but it's also, it's amazingly like what did happen later. Right. It's, actually, it's, it, it just happens on a bigger stage at FTX, right? There's more money. There's more confusion. There's more cats. I mean, FTX so, later. I mean, can I just show this? To, to, can to, I explain the, what that is? Yes, you can. Okay, you're not going to be able to see what this is. So, so remember that Sam Bankman-Fried, when he first 
defines his place in the world. Yeah. It's, his place in the world is in excelling in making decisions in chaotic environments, semi-chaotic. Chaotic and not fully chaotic, but where no one else can function, he can function. Complicated chess games. And I think part of the key to his character is seeing that that was the only place he succeeded, really succeeded, really. He, he goes on and creates a series of such environments. And one such environment he created was FTX. And this, this, this is, is the org chart. Wait, but this is, so, so when FTX imploded last November and it goes into bankruptcy, the people running the bankruptcy are bewildered to find there's no list of employees, there's no, nobody has a title that barely resembles, even faintly resembles what they actually did, and there's no organization chart. So they don't, even, they don't even know who worked at the place. And the prosecutors made, had made some note of this too, like we don't, we don't know who was who in this business. Whatever you think of the thing, he had an argument. I think at the bottom of that argument was he really liked chaos. But the chaos, of course, is not something anybody else likes. Sam likes it, but nobody else likes it. And so he has 400 miserable or confused or disturbed employees <laughs> because they don't know where they are in this organization. They, they might have a title, but it's not what they're doing. And there's all this emotional fallout from this. Sam has no ability to deal with other people's emotions. Right. He subcontracts the emotional work of managing people. He basically thinks people shouldn't need to be managed. So he subcontracts the emotional work to other people who will step in and do play that role. In this case, this is the fall of 2021, uh, when he moves his FTX to the Bahamas, he at the same time moves his personal psychiatrist right. from the Bay Area to the Bahamas to be the psychiatrist for the whole company. George Lerner is his name. Yeah. George gets there and is, is shocked to find that 100 FTX employees want to be his patient right away <laughs> and, 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 and are on his couch. And he's got a little hut in the middle of, they've got a bunch of these huts in the jungle in the Bahamas. And one of the huts is George's hut, which is dealing with the psychological and emotional fallout from Sam Bankman-Fried. And George realizes that when he can't actually service these people if he does, when they're talking about their problems at work, but he has no picture in his head of this organization. So in his therapy sessions, he teases out an organization chart for the, for the company. And he, that is George's organization chart. That's the only, it is appropriate. Chaos. The, the only picture of the organization that anybody has was a private picture. And George told nobody but me that he did this because he didn't want Sam to be angry at him for creating an organization chart. But before George vanished into the jungles of Vietnam, where he is right now, uh, uh, that he gave me the thumb drive with that thing on it. And I thought, this is like, I, it's all, I, it kind of bothers me when people are listening to the audiobook because you kind of need this thing. It's sort of like the family tree in the front of a Tolstoy novel. Yeah, or, or the, why you need or, the hardcover. Or the, king, yeah. or the kings yeah. in, a, in a Shakespeare play. I couldn't believe it when I saw it. I mean, I, somebody runs an organization, I was like packedly passed out. Yeah. When I saw this. But, right. you, but it's actually quite accurate. And there, is, there are really funny little things on that he figured out. For example, they had a chief te the chief technology officer, yeah. and now star witness, one of the star witnesses in the Sam Bankman-Fried trials, a guy named Gary Wang. Now, Gary was curious because Sam was the only one who seemed to be able to talk to him. Gary didn't say anything. He, that right. people would famously, he didn't he talk. Famously, people would sit next to him for six months, and he would say not a word to them. And they, people got, would have the 
opinion that Gary just didn't speak. I tried to interview him. Yeah, it was the strangest experience <laughs> I've ever had. And so Gary is supposed to be the chief technology officer. And of course, on a, or, a normal organization chart, you'd have the chief technology officer and then all these people underneath him. If you look at it, Gary's just off in his own little box, <laughs> off on the side. And it says chief technology officer, but there's no social there's relationship between him and anybody else. On the, right. There's a zillion things like that on that chart right. that are very perceptive. Right. And this is where things get really silly, right? I mean, th th they get to the Bahamas. Well, I mean, we got to talk about Hong Kong, though, because they, they move Alameda out of Hong Well, it stays in Berkeley, and they start FTX in Hong Kong. Is that right? So twice, they start Alameda Research, the trading firm, in Berkeley. Yeah. And twice in the next uh, two years, three years, Sam takes a trip and calls the company and says, we're all moving here. The first is, is Berkeley to Hong Kong. Right. And the second, first he says, I'm not coming back, and you all can come if you want. But first is, is Berkeley to Hong Kong. The second is Hong Kong to the Bahamas. These moves, it may just be coincidence, correspond pretty closely to moments in his romantic relationship with Caroline Ellison, mm. who ends up running Alameda Research, when Caroline is insisting on greater commitment from Sam or going public with their love affair. Right. And Sam's response is to fly 6,000 miles and say, I'm not coming back. And, <laughs> and, and, and it, I, it's, I, a, it's a good sign that things so, aren't so, so going great. I, so, so, <laughs> so oddly, George Lerner, the psychiatrist, yeah. was not only Sam's psychiatrist, he was Caroline's psychiatrist too. And Carol, he was Caroline's psychiatrist before he was Sam's psychiatrist. And George thought, when I put to George that the reason Sam moved to Hong Kong was to get away from Caroline, before she told everybody they were sleeping together. He said, yep, that's what he, that's why, that's why. And then he said, and he did it again when he moved to the Bahamas. So the, his, the psychiatrist shared my suspicion that the relationship was at the bottom of these massive corporate moves, but Caroline still follows. So yeah. it doesn't work. And, and then later testifies against and him. Le, and later actually becomes the single most important witness in the trial against him. So the Hong Kong move is the first move. The stated reason is he gets to Hong Kong on a little trip, and he's amazed that the crypto markets have basically, are basically Asian markets. Right. And all their trade, so much of their trading is on these Asian crypto exchanges. And it's easier to find the missing ripple on the, on the Korean <laughs> exchange if you're actually in Korea. Right. Or you're, or you're near Korea. So he decides that it's, it's a better place to do their trading from. This story has been put into a little black box now. Sam Bankman-Fried has been convicted of fraud. He's going to go to jail for life. But if you're going to grapple with what happened, they're just things you have to accept that don't conveniently fit in the box. And one of them is the effective altruism stuff is completely sincere, like beyond sincere. It was a religion. He believed it. He still believes it. The, the second thing is he moves to Hong Kong for trading reasons. And the more they trade, the more dissatisfied they are with the exchanges on which they're trading. They're all balky. They're right. all doing things like losing customer money. I mean, they, it's just... Well, it's it, so, it, I mean, I think it, I was just astonished. It's wild west. It's so sloppy. I mean, these are billions of dollars, theoretically at least, because we don't know what the value of these coins are until you actually try to sell them. Yeah, but it is billions of dollars. It's trillions of dollars that are washing around. I right. mean, trillions of dollars of wealth have been created out of thin air. You can sell a Bitcoin for dollars. Right. Y you can get actual money. But crypto, very oddly, having started as an expression of mistrust about existing financial institutions, proceeds to erect a parallel universe of exactly the same financial institutions. Right. Bank, crypto banks, 
in theory, you don't need a bank to trade for me to trade Bitcoin with you. I can just send it to you, you can send it to me. Right. Crypto exchanges, and the crypto exchanges have become the single fastest way to fortune is to build one of these exchanges. And the exchanges are all, they're technically not good, just generally. They certainly aren't kind of industrial grade. They aren't like the New York Stock Exchange. Things happen on them like uh, a trader comes on, games the exchange, loses, causes the exchange to lose you know, $100 million, and the exchange doesn't have $100 million, so it just bills all of its customers for the $100 million. <laughs> and it's, that was just normal for the crypto markets. And Sam thinks, well, I can build, we could build a better exchange. And that's it's, what FTX is. This is the beginning, yeah. but, the, but this is what you have to grapple with. Sam doesn't think, oh, I'm gonna build an exchange and I'm gonna run an exchange. He thinks, I can, we can, Gary can build a better exchange and we can sell it to someone and take a license fee. And he's thinking this because he thinks, this is different from being a trader. An exchange is a retail business. That you, 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 have to have, you have customers and you have to relate to people. Sam was in a cave his whole life and he found one little tribe of people who were kind of like him, these effective altruists, all kind of mathy, people who are using math to, to argue their way through life. And he, says, he knows, he's very aware that like, he might not play to the public. In fact, couldn't imagine playing to the public. So he thinks I gotta get one of these exchanges to buy my software and they'll create this better futures exchange uh, and we'll get a license fee from it. So that's what he tries to do and none of the other exchange, exchanges, none of the Asian exchanges will buy it. So they get stuck, last resort, having to create the exchange that they wanna trade on. And that's the beginning. So when you're at a dinner party and someone says to you, Sam Bankman-Fried created this crypto exchange so he could steal customers' deposits. You can say back to them, he didn't even want to create the crypto exchange. Right. Uh, so that, that's clearly not why he did it. The initial motives were different, and they were, they were sure they're going to fail. Because it, it, Sam thought, once people see me, they're all going to run the other, other way. He's like but the he, elephant man in the crypto he, markets. He does end uh, up being kind of a public figure. I mean, by the time... No, this is what's so amazing. I know, this is the, the, the whole uh, thing flips on its head because yes. he ends up, you know, like hanging out with Tom Brady. Oh, no, and like, no, no, this, this, is, this, is, it, this blows everybody's mind. It's like... It makes no sense. None of this none makes of this, any sense. None of it makes any sense except... And it's billions and billions of dollars. Let me layer on one, the, yeah. one of the things that's going on in my head when I, start to, when I take this on as a subject is, one, it's social satire of the highest order. That his, his movement through the world is telling you in a kind of comic way so much about the way the world is now. At no other time in history would, he have, would this have happened and it's telling us about this moment, what's happened to him. And so much of it is accidental. He has to promote this exchange. Right. That's how you get people to come onto the exchange. And the person they call the head of public relations, who's never done public relations, the first rule of life in FTX, in Sam's world, was you can have no experience in the job <laughs> That's right. that you're taken to do. That it's, like, it, it's like, if you have experience, they don't even want to talk to you. So, every, so this person who is this delightful young woman, Natalie Tian is her name, who has been appointed head of public relations and been there three months, looks at Sam and says, you know, I'm gonna try to put him on TV. And she thinks he's so weird. The hair, <laughs> the shorts, the fact that he can't pay attention to one thing at a time. And she puts him on Bloomberg television. And this is in, I don't know, like 2020. Yeah. And, and she's watching him, he's doing it from his desk. And she realizes, she's watching his eyes, she's across from it first, his eyes are going back and forth. And she's going, what the hell's going on? She walks behind him 
and he's playing a video game the first time he's on, on TV. He's on live television, yeah. and he's playing a, a game called Storybook Brawl. <laughs> the way he's on TV, once you know he's playing a video game, his man, what he's doing on TV is, oh, that's a good question, or uh, let me think about that for a second. <laughs> and, and so he's playing his game until he needs to say something. When he has to say something, he gives, he stalls with one of these like filler things. Good question. Yeah. And then answers the question, and then he goes back to his video game. And Natalie looks at this and says, it's so different, it might work. And, and, it, and actually, it just went boom. It did work. It went boom. Like whatever, that the world was so entranced by this, his artlessness. Like right. he was the opposite of the slick financial person. He was the opposite of the crypto salesperson. They say, the, the, the interviewers would say, what if crypto is all, all bullshit? And Sam would say, I think it might be all bullshit, but it's great bullshit, you know? And it's, <laughs> and, 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 and it's that we don't care. He sort of would say, I don't care whether crypto is real. All I care is that it lasts long enough and people want to trade it uh, that we can make money from right. it. He becomes his own media story in a way. He became his, he became his own thing. Yeah. And everybody who met him, including Tom Brady, just about everybody who met him, found him endearing. So this is something that does not come across in a court of law. So I'll tell you a funny, his, this isn't in the book. We're in April of 2022, I met up with a character from The Big Short. Huh. Now, who are these characters in The Big Short? These are the most cynical people on Wall Street. These people identified a Wall Street scam, basically, that Wall Street itself was sort of blind to, and pushed their cynicism to great to fortune. They're short sellers. Their whole lives are spotting fraud. I bump into this guy at Sam's Crypto Bahamas conference. And I was kind of like, well, what are you doing here? And he's like, what are you doing here? And so we had, we had that, we had that conversation. We, we had that conversation. But he says, I tell you why I'm here. He says, I really like Sam. And I said, well, we like, he said, he, this is the quote. He says, he says, who else do you know has $22 billion and isn't a bag and it has nothing to hide. That was the feeling around Sam. He has nothing to hide. That he's just out there. It's what you see is what you get. Right. And there was a lot of that. Now people are retelling the story now from with hindsight, but even that character looked at Sam and said he's he has nothing to hide. And he's not been warped by this money in any kind of weird way. That's what you felt too when you of first course. met him. Yeah. yeah. When I first met him, I saw I I get into his book in a very odd way. Uh, a friend calls me up in the fall of 2021 and says, I got a problem. I've got uh, a business deal on the table here. FTX, I never heard of FTX. He says, FTX is proposing we exchange, we exchange shares in each other. This was the main character from Flash Boys. So yeah. it was IEX and FTX. We're going to exchange shares in each other, $300 million in shares. And Brad Kasiyama, the main character of Flash Boys, says to me, this looks like an incredible opportunity in that it's the fastest growing financial business I've ever seen. He's gone from having $20 million in revenues in 2019 to 100 in 2020 to almost a billion in 2021. It, this thing is just exploding. And to have a piece of it would be great. He says, the problem is nobody knows who Sam Bankman-Fried is. That I call around Wall Street and nobody really knows him. He's made this fortune in 18 months. He's been in Hong Kong. COVID is preventing any kind of face-to-face -face relations. Could you just sit down with him and give me your view of him? So I was called to give a character reference, basically. Right. And Sam Bankman-Fried turned up on my doorstep in Berkeley, and we went for a walk. It almost killed him. 
you know, always dressed for a hike, but never went on one. And, and, and it's, it's, that, was my, that was my thought after the hike. And, and by the middle of it, I was already in my mind, I just want to watch what happens here. Because this is, this is, it's combustible, and it's, there's no, I've never seen anything quite like this. It was fast, you talk to the people at Forbes, they'll tell you that it's the fastest fortune of this size ever made. It came out of nowhere, and it was, and it had these weird motives. He was going to make, he didn't want to make a, $100 billion, he wanted to make a trillion dollars because he had all these plans to address things like pandemic prevention, government-sized problems. Right. And he was doing weird things like trying to pay Donald Trump not to run for president and, or try to pay off the national debt of the Bahamas so that he could fix, make the country respectable for his business, yeah. or all that kind of stuff. And I just thought, this, I've never seen anything like this, and I just want to watch. I called my friend at the end of it, and he said, what'd you think? And I said, go ahead and swap the shares. What could go wrong? <laughs> and, and, and I have said this from, I have said this since I published Liar's Poker. I'm the last person you, you should ask for financial advice. <laughs> that I, get, I get too worked up about the story, right? I just, the story was so interesting. Yes. I didn't know I had, I spent a year, and I've done this before, I've done this before, where I've had a year where I've just, I've just I moved in. Yeah. Like a fly on the wall for a year. I had lots of stuff. I had a character. I had material. I didn't have a story. Last November, this is a funny, weird moment in time, I happened to be at a retreat with some creative types. And one of the creative types was a friend who's a well-known film director. And he and I sat down. I sat him down to tell him what I just experienced the past year and tell him that I was having this problem. I had all this stuff, but I didn't think it was a book. I tell him about Sam. I, I told him nothing that wasn't true. It was all stuff that had happened. You know, here are these scenes. Yeah. Here's Sam being seduced by Anna Wintour over Zoom to become the sponsor of the Met Gala. And, and I mean, when he wears T-shirts and shorts, right. all that stuff. <laughs> it was like one thing after another. And he says, to my, the film director says, if you were writing a movie, you have a problem because you don't have a third act. Right. But because you're writing a book, he said, you're a good enough writer, you can trick the reader into thinking you have a third act. You could kind of dance your way out of this, and this stuff is so wild, you should write it. Yeah. And I was kind of like, I don't know, I was, that's where I was. That was the day before FTX crashed. So it was the day before. Two days later, this director emails me, says, can I direct the movie? Yeah. <laughs> and, and, so it, it, wasn't, it wasn't till then, it took a year of kind of living in it to get stu the stuff, but it, I didn't know I had a story until right. it all fell apart. But how do we square the, the sort of almost cartoon-like madness of the Bahamas, the sort of bazookas of money he's firing at- Into your suburb. Totally inappropriate candidates. What, there's no, it was $10 million. There's no way he's doing that for his like crypto business. All Carrick Flynn cares about is pandem pandemic prevention. Right. You have to accept there are these other things that go with his character. You also have to accept, oh, go ahead, how do you square? Well, I mean, I, it, you're, you're getting at it. I mean, you, you yeah. sort of flat, like, the way in which this sort of story's been told in the press, it sort of flattens all of this, right? Yes. And it, what I found so confusing about the prosecution and even that CEO, Jack, what was his name? John Ray. John Ray. They seem to have these very fixed ideas, like the, the headlines, even the Times was like sort of, you know, Bankman Freed steals money for his lavish lifestyle in the Bahamas. And I was like, I don't really no. think that, that's, that's what the, That's not the meaning of the, the spirit of the thing. They, they did buy that condo. That wasn't his where he lived. Now, there's no question he broke all these laws. I mean, the, the, the laws were broken. Right. The why and the how of it, though, have not come across 
very well. So you think he's guilty for sure? When they start FTX, they started as essentially a, a conjoined business with Alameda Research. Right. If you were gonna deposit money onto FTX, they don't, FTX isn't, can't get bank accounts because it's a crypto exchange. No bank wants to deal with them. So they dummy up uh, accounts within Alameda Research. So if you want to trade on FTX, you, you send your money to that. And I've seen the wire instructions. People were typing in, I'm sending money to Alameda Research, knowing that it was essentially Going being there. held there to trade on FTX. So it starts commingled. That's illegal. The question is when it becomes darker. Given the fact that these things, these two businesses were never completely separated, and the money was always in the wrong place. You're, you're in jail for that already, probably. Yeah. Maybe not, though. Maybe not if, if someone had intervened in, I don't know, March of last year. If some grown-up had somehow figured out what was happening. What, what they would have seen is, at that moment, and up until, I think the prosecutors have basically agreed with this, up until about June, May, June of last year, the pile of money, stop thinking of two businesses, one business, Sam's World. Sam's World includes Alameda Research and FTX. The pile of money, actually liquid assets, like dollars of Bitcoin or Ethereum, inside of Sam's World exceeded the dollars that customers thought they had there. So at that moment, you could have just given the customers back their money, simply. In right. the, and where it starts to turn dark is when you can't. So it's that period, May, June, up until they actually come up, the customers all demand their money back in November, that is the, where the darkest stuff happens. That's but, like an old-fashioned bank run, essentially. Yeah, is what it's like, but it's not down. a bank. That's right. the it's a bank run right. on something that's not supposed to be a bank. Right. And it's Sam Bankman-Fried having, at that, from that moment, it's Sam Bankman-Fried, when the pile of money is not enough to cover the deposits, when it's less, anything he does, he's effectively doing it with customer deposits at right. that point. Before that, he's doing it with not with customer deposits, even though it's the way it's structured, the way he's got it structured is illegal. I've asked lawyers this. They've been identified before, if they've been caught before and been forced to fix it, they'd have been like a fine somewhere. They, they, they unlikely they'd have been any kind of, if customers all had their money. Now here's where it gets really weird, and nobody's really been paying attention to this. Yeah. In June, the bankruptcy people filed a report they're $8.6 billion of missing customer deposits, of customers who need, who've never got their money back, 8.6 billion. We have found 7.3 billion of that. And by found, it's not, he's going, he's not gone and clawed back money from anybody, not significant sums. He's actually found it, like an Easter egg hunt. Right. Uh, like the keys were, like the ripple. Right. That, and uh, there's a moment in the book when it was all falling apart, when another character who was important at FTX but was never dragged into the trial, he was called head of product. He didn't know anything about the product, but he did a lot of Sam's invest, <laughs> investment activity. And he walks into the room where Caroline, Gary, Sam, and Nishad are trying to figure out where the money is. Like, they're trying to get money back to depositors. And this guy, Remnick's phone rings. And it's from a bank in the Bahamas called Deltec. And he says, hey, the guy says, hey, Remnick, we hear you might be in trouble. Just so you know, that we have $300 million with, of your money in an account here and no one in the room knows it. And so, so and, and Ramnick, he realizes what they're doing in this room is trying to figure out where all this missing ripple is. That, right, that right. It's, there are accounts in crypto exchanges and banks around the world, and they, they have not gathered them up. And at that moment, this guy Ramnick says, these people didn't know. If they had known they had a problem, they never would have not had the money organized. So the bankruptcy has, has gone and found a lot of money, not all of it, 
Now here's where it gets even more bizarre. In addition to the $7.3 billion, there is this husk of a venture capital firm that Sam had inside of Alameda Research with all these investments. One of the investments, there are a bunch of these investments that, are, that actually are gonna pan out big time. He wasn't a bad venture capitalist, I don't think. He wasn't a great one, but he wasn't a bad one. And one of them, he invested $500 million in an AI company called Anthropic and bought 20% of the company at the time. When I meet John Ray in February of last year, who's running the bankruptcy, he says to me, he's trying to show me what an idiot Sam was, and one of the things he says is, look what he did, he gave $500 million to this dumb company called Anthropic, it's worthless, it's just an idea. The most recent round of fundraising by Anthropic from Google and Amazon is valuing Anthropic at $30 billion. So that Sam's, that yeah. FTX stake, or Alameda stake has been diluted to like 15%, but what is that, four and a half billion dollars? If you talk to people who trade the claims on the exchange, they'll tell you they think everybody's gonna get their money back with interest. So we're gonna be in a place, two years from now, when the bankruptcy people quit billing the, everybody for their, their, their time, <laughs> yeah. where the bankruptcy lawyers and John Ray and those people will have taken a billion dollars out in fees, and Everybody will get their money back, and Sam Bankman-Free will be serving life in jail. That's probably the likely outcome right now. Right. It's so head-scratching it, and bizarre. It's bizarre. Yeah. I, I have felt from the beginning that Sam Bankman-Fried was telling us things about the world. The things that, what was yeah. happening to Sam Bankman-Fried as he moved through life was telling us all these things about the world. And his collision with the justice system has taught us even some things about the justice system. And one of, the, one of the things that's kind of running through the book, too, mm. is everybody's trying to understand Sam and nobody can. It's been kind of fun, but kind of uh, uh, mildly traumatic in my life, that those, all those feelings about Sam and all those problems with Sam have been foisted upon the book. After FTX collapsed, it took a nanosecond before essentially there was a mob. The feeding frenzy. The feed, there was a, that we organized our, our society. This is what Sam is telling us. This is what his experience is telling us in this, in this instance. It, our society has gotten really good at organizing into tribes around something someone is, people are angry about. That, that we, are, we are addicted to anger right now. Yeah. It's, a, it's all over our politics. It's, it's motivating our, our debates about complicated things. And, it's a combination of social media and this emotion that the tribe organizes around something it hates or, or something they agree to be angry about. And you can pick your subject. The tribe organized very quickly around they hate Sam and they're angry about Sam. It flipped, I mean, immediately. Immediately. Yeah. Everybody who loved him hated him. All of a sudden, people started to retell their story about their relationship to him, too. Right. And by the time the trial happens a year later, you could feel what it must have been like to watch a, a, a lynch mob approaching its target, or some people in Salem finding a witch, or that, that emotion. Yeah. And anybody who stands up and says, whoa, 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 yeah, maybe some laws were broken here, okay, it, this, this is what happened. And there's a context to all this, and there's a humanity to all this. It's a curious humanity, but it's really interesting. But anybody who distracts the mob from its simple narrative that it's organized around becomes the target of the mob. Right. And so, my book has survived. My book is going to be fine. But it was willful, willfully misread in the beginning yep. because the mob did not like the dis being distracted from the story it wanted to tell. What worries me 
is that I can handle it. I've already got a reputation. Yeah. If you are some young journalist writing about anything controversial, you write with one eye on that mob. It may not be the mob that's upset about Sam Magnet Freed. It might be the mob that's got its opinions on what's going on in the Middle East. It might be the mob about Trump. It might be whatever. And you live in fear of that mob because they can do you a lot of damage. You know, that they are organized and it's a, and the mob doesn't even really think of itself as a mob, it, but it right. is. And that sentiment, it's in the air and it's really warping the way we talk about things. Right. And what we, what we are allowed to understand about things. Right. Right. I, um, I, there's a, sorry, you've also made the single greatest argument for literature. Um, which is that we have these writers like yourself who are going to do things and write things that are really important and undercover, get underneath those headlines and underneath that mob to tell us the real human story. Um, and this book does this beautifully. So, thank you. Yeah, it it's really, fun. It's really good. So thank you for being here. Thank, thank you. you for coming. Uh, that was a lot of fun. Thank you, sir. That was Michael Lewis from the Portland Book Festival in 2023. This has been Literary Arts, the Archive Project. It's a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. The Archive Project is produced in collaboration with Oregon Public Broadcasting. To hear more, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our show is produced by Crystal Ligori and Matthew Workman for Radio and Podcast, with oversight by Amanda Bullock and support from Liz Olofsson and Alberto Swem. And I'm the executive producer. Special thanks to the Literary Arts marketing staff, Joe T. Roy and Hope Levy, and the entire Literary Arts staff, board, and community. This show would not be possible without them. Thanks also to the band Emancipator for our theme music, and thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Andrew Proctor, and this has been another episode of the Archive Project from Literary Arts. Next week, we'll be featuring Colson Whitehead, so please join us and find your story here.